they're an alcoholic still. Well, thanks for having me, first of all. Um, my sponsor's right over there. He's the uh, distinguished gentleman who's about to talk to you for longer than I. Um, my sobriety date's uh, October 3rd, two, uh, 2009. And uh, I splatted against the wall. Drunk logs, for the most part, I got stories, and I'm sure I can make you laugh, but that's not really, to me, you know, I think I'm sick of my own story probably after 13 years. Um, um, it was bad. I was hopeless uh, when I splatted against the wall. I could give you details, but you know, we've all heard some of that before and I'm not that funny. Um, at any rate, I got sober. Uh, basically, my wife was on the precipice of leaving me and I had two kids at the time. Well, I still have two kids. Thank God. Uh, mostly, thank God. Um, uh, they're, they were uh, 10 and 13 at the time. And not unlike the birthday speech we just heard, which was lovely. Um, my, well, my initial goal was probably to get my family back. Um, when I got, I went to a rehab for 10 months. Because 30 days in a rehab was just a... A tester for me. I wasn't gonna. Uh, I wasn't gonna stick much with 30 days. So I was there for 10 months, um, and uh, it was a Jewish rehab. I'm Irish, um, so that was amusing. Um, I'm sort of an expatriated Christian of sorts, or recovering one, however you want to put it. So being in uh, Jewish rehab was interesting. Going to six o'clock Torah studies and. Being there almost a year, I kind of made it almost all the way through the Torah, so that was fascinating. And I love comparative religions anyway, just uh, sort of in a Joseph Campbell kind of way. But the point being is that um, uh, I think I had a big spiritual hole in my in my in my soul, which um, needed filled with something because I was filling it with with vodka. I mean, just short story. Toward the end, was so pitiful it's ridiculous. I mean, I go into a liquor store and buy those little bottles of, of uh, airline vodka, not even the expensive ones. And I figured I'd take my son to work, or excuse me, to work, to school, and then I'd go on the other side of the park and park and sit there and I'd drink these little bottles. And my whole thought process at the time, as damaged as it was, was that if I drink the bottle and then throw it in the garbage, I could never get popped for an open container in my car. Uh, which was amusing in a miniaturized sort of small way, which is what it all was all about. But um, anyway, 10 months of rehab was interesting because there was a point in time, and I kind of, interestingly enough, being hopeless was the biggest gift I had. They tell you in, this, in these rooms, if you come in broken and shattered and uh, lost and probably borderline suicidal, that's the best gift you can have. And at the first, when you first walk in these rooms, you have no idea what they're talking about. There's no frame of reference and people are laughing at everybody's pain and it's really, a, it's an interesting, it's an interesting, and our broken hearts are all funny and, you know, it takes a while to get the gallows humor to understand the, the language of how if you can't heal, you can't, if you can't laugh, you can't heal till my sponsor told me so profoundly early in my sobriety. But um, the long and short of it all, in this Jewish rehab, um, uh, they had this Buddhist meditation component <laughs> in the middle of it, oddly enough. And I remember 
being hopeless, obviously. Um, but I kind of, I'm sort of, I guess I have an addictive nature, as otherwise I wouldn't be here um, on a Friday night. But the point was that I think I threw myself into uh, the rehab and recovery unwittingly, but with my addictive nature. And I was told that uh, only 5% of us survive or stay in AA. And I think that made me mad or pissed me off to some degree because she goes, you're probably not going to last. I had a this spiritual advisor who was sort of negative and twisted in her cynicism or shocking you into scaring you straight, one of the two. And I think I got mad. There was a chip on my shoulder that I wasn't going to survive in these rooms. So I sort of took on AA as a, with a vengeance. And um, this Buddhist meditation, I remember it was a bell meditation where it was like a stone bell and they... It was a small room with us, all the lights off and everyone, well, not completely off, but down low. And I remember this not being focused on anything at the time, but there was this energy, if you've ever been around one of those, that actually travels in a circle around the room. And you can actually kind of feel it. It's kind of a weird thing. But I remember it sort of had a harmonic sort of, it sort of sunk into my thick skull. And uh, it was something small. It was like a flicker of light. And, and I know they say half measures avail us nothing, but half measures availed me everything largely because I'm sure that my program is half as intense and half as thorough and half as self-forgiving and half the empathy I should have and half of everything based on not doing it perfectly and that hedge for me is half measures availed me everything and uh, that rehab changed my life and they allowed me to stay the irony of the rehab was that I was a day patient or I was a out whatever they call it outpatient so I'd leave my house in Glendale every morning. And after a month of sobriety, my wife let me back in the house. I was sleeping on the couch, but I was back in the house. And uh, I would drive to this rehab every morning in West LA from Glendale at 5.30 in the morning and go to Torah study. Then they'd have um, a big book study. Then you'd have breakfast. And then you'd go through group study for the rest of the day. Um, what was the point of that? Um, Oh, so I went through eight months of this rehab, and this rehab is somewhere in the somewhere in the vein of, I don't know, a few thousand a month. And uh, I hadn't paid him a penny, and I kind of, I did, I was interred there, and I and I went through the the intro process. And about eight months into it, the the guy who was the head of the the, the rehab came to me, and goes, Darren, uh, uh, how long have you been here? I said eight eight and a half months. And he said, uh, he goes, have you ever? been on the books or paid us anything? I went, no, no, I haven't. And uh, he goes, well, we charge patients who can afford it five grand a month. And I was like, oh, oh. And he said, uh, you have a job? And I went, this. And um, he goes, can you, what can you afford? And I said, I don't know at the moment, but he goes, can you afford 200 a month? And I went, yeah, I can afford 200 a month. So I basically got $50,000 worth of rehab for about 600 bucks. And that was a miracle on its own because Lord knows how this happens. But um, but I was of great, I'm great. My humility's all intact. I was of service to that place for the last six months, and and I was a car. I had a car, so I drove kids to the hospital and the doctor. And I mean, I was of service. I wasn't just a freeloader on the on the uh, on the dole, if you will, um, at this place. But it, the place changed my life and taught me what service was, and taught me what grace under pressure was, taught me what grace in the face of kind of everything. I mean, I lost friends in there that overdosed. It was before the fentanyl uh, pandemic, if you will. Um, but I lost friends just to straight up 
heroin overdose, unfortunately, in there. And that shakes you up and um, makes a mess of, you know, your state of mind. But it also makes you cling to sobriety with a savage uh, grip, which is what I did. I was, and I've ultimately been so afraid of, not afraid of a relapse, but so, so wary of a relapse. I don't want to do this again. I don't want to give up. And it's a little selfish because I don't want to give up the power I have. And the power I have is just the power of, you know, self-reliance. And I show up for my kids' things, even though they're now 26 and 23, but on the road to being a parent with them. And I got back to them just in time to be a dad when I'd been a bit of an absentee dad for a couple of years at the end of my, at the end of my, my drinking. I got the family back. Um, and I love my kids. And my wife's put up with me, <clears throat> I think for 31 years now. So somehow she saw some thumbnail of salvage work that was left in me at the end of my, my run, if you will, in, in, in 2009, and she stuck around. So anyway, I think I'm close to 10 minutes. Feels like I've gone around the world. So um, thanks for asking me to speak. Um, you're all lovely. Thanks for feeding me. I've never been fed quite this well at a meeting. So. Um, <laughs> Thanks for being welcoming, and that's me. Thanks. All right, let's give it again one more time for Darren. Thank you very much. We stuff them here. And now for our main speaker, Darren's sponsor, John. Come on up here, John. That's for you. Okay, this is straight up about as close as it's going to get. Hi, I'm John. I'm an alcoholic. Hi, John. Oh, let's see. 70 years ago, if the wind was right, you probably smelled my hometown, Chino. Um, I grew up in Chino. Um, I was a member of the Dutch Christian Reformed Church. All the dairymen in Chino. And um, not only did I have to go to the Dutch Christian Reformed Church, I had to go to Ontario Christian School. And um, very steeped in, in Calvinism, and um, kind of thought that God was kind of like Zeus, you know, he stood on high and threw thunderbolts. And that was kind of my concept of God for a long time, and nothing wrong with that. I mean, I was a kid, that was the concept I had. Um, and everything was fine when I was a kid. We had a great life. I mean, I went to school, we went to church. Um, we were on a dairy, had a dairy. I had calves to feed. As soon as I could um, lift, lift a pail of milk, I, would, I had a job. I got to feed the cows and, and feed the calves and push bales on my dad. And um, my dad was kind of mean. But um, my brothers and I kind of handled my dad when he was mean. One of, one of our favorite punishments was uh, he'd get real mad at us guys, and uh, we used to have these high-pressure hoses for the cows to wash the cows. So when my dad really got mad at us, he would um, line us up outside the, the barn, and he'd turn the hose on us. And my brothers and I would just tumble, tumble across the you know, and somebody said, well, that was child abuse. And I'm like, oh, I just thought that was tough love. And that's the way uh, I grew up. Everything was fine. And then we sold the cows and bought the other end of the business. So we had a milk plant in Ontario. And we moved to Upland, California. 
I was telling Darren on the way out here that the minute I saw Mount Baldy, I got a smile. I miss Mount Baldy. I ended up um, in Upland and Upland High School is where I graduated from. And um, Mount Baldy and I drank a lot together. I stumbled down a lot of trails in Mount Baldy and lucky to be alive driving back and forth up Mount Baldy. I had probably one of the best jobs in high school you could ever have for a versioning alcoholic. I was the um, uh, delivery boy for Upland Pharmacy. And Mr. Silverthorne, who ran the pharmacy, thought I was such a great kid that eventually he trusted me to help him with inventory. And I did a great job with inventory. Five for Mr. Silverthorne, one for me. Five for Mr. Silverthorne, one for me. And I did not share. But I also got this strange relationship with drugs at that time. And uh, what was strange is that the pharmacist, Mr. Silver, Silverthorne, would ask me to um, fill um, capsules with flour. It was placebo. So I would hand the placebo to somebody uh, at the door, and their hands were shaking until they handed the bag. And I kind of got the idea that some of the drugs, it, it was psychological. So sometimes drugs worked for me, sometimes they didn't. But what always worked for me was beer, alcohol in any form, and uh, beer was one of my favorites, was absolutely one of my favorites. Um, my dear dad left us, and that was pretty traumatic for the family. And that kind of ended my childhood. Um, I got to see my dad come falling out of the uh, bowling alley one night in uh, Cucamonga, and his arm was draped around another woman, and I was in the car with my mom as she was watching all this, and I had to kind of grow up pretty fast. Um, so I grew up through high school with uh, my mom looking at me and checking to, to make sure that I was staying good. And one of the ways that she kept me really being good was she said, you're going to grow up to be just like your, your father. And I'd go, oh, no, I will never grow up to be like him. And uh, then I had my first drink and I had my first, first girl. And I went, nah, maybe dad was right. Um, and that was kind of the beginning. I was a blackout drinker from the beginning, and uh, I don't know why I did so well in the military. When I was um, 18, I joined the Air Force so that I would not have to um, uh, get drafted in the Army, and I thought that was a really good deal, and I got my first assignment, which was Minot Air Force Base, North Dakota. And I'm from Southern California, born and raised here, of course. And I did not know that the words wind, chill, and factor went together. I had never heard that before. And uh, one of my uh, first really major alcoholic decisions was I walked into the personnel office and I said, middle of winter. I think it was like 50, 50 degrees below with the wind chill factor in my night. And I said, how do I get off this base? And they laughed at me and said, you're here you'll be here for four years. And I went, no, really, how do I get off this base? And I said, well, if you volunteer for Vietnam, you'll be off this base. 
So I walked out and I kind of pulled the Arctic wool around my face, faced the wind, walked back in the building and said, give me the papers. So about two months later, at the height of um, summer in Vietnam, they opened that airplane door and uh, 100 degrees and, and, and about 99% humidity hit me in the face and I said, hmm, this may not have been one of my better ideas. <laughs> uh, by this time, um, when my parents split, that was kind of like the first divorce in, in um, the church in Chino, the Christian Reformed Church in Chino. Um, and it was kind of like instant ostracism. I told my mom I want to go to public school. I never want to go to Ontario Christian again. Um, I don't want to have anything to do with the school or the church. Uh, I just don't want any part of it. And, and pretty much all that training I had, you know, it was there, but, but it was at the wayside. Well, one night in Vietnam when I was kind of under, um, well, let's put it this way. I didn't have any cover. And uh, you can't believe how close you can get to Mother Earth when you don't have any cover. Cover and two things happened that night. I think, which I didn't know about, I read about it later. I think I did some astral projection and I went home to mommy. And the other thing I did was I kind of cringed and I went, dear God, help me, you know, that alcoholic prayer. And, uh, you know, I, I got home from Vietnam. Uh, I think uh, drinking probably helped my, uh, if I had PS, uh, post, whatever that is, um, PSD, um, I think I drank through it. I think it really helped me. Although um, I was not a nice person. Um, I'd gotten married in the Air Force. Um, I, had, I ended up having three DUIs. My first DUI was just before I went to Vietnam and I went to the judge in Upland and uh, showed him my uh, orders. And he said, well, I'm gonna just let you go and just go to Vietnam. And I think he was kind of hoping I got shot. I would get shot. So that's how I got out of my first DUI. My next DUI is when I got back from Vietnam. And that was in Texas. So I spaced them really well. And uh, actually the reward, they kicked me out of Texas for that one. And I maneuvered it, and my next assignment was Athens, Greece. So that was kind of a great reward for my second DUI. And um, I'd gotten married. My two kids were born in Athens. Um, I had a great time, and then we came back to the United States and, and from Athens, where we lived in a villa. I ended up buying a house in, in uh, North Las Vegas because I was signed to Nellis Air Force Base. and. Uh, found out I was poor again. Didn't like that, got out of the Air Force, started selling real estate, did really, really well in Las Vegas, got groomed uh, for political party in, um, in uh, Las Vegas and, and did real good. And then I drank myself out of that. So I ended up with a fiance. I had one child, uh, we split, got divorced. One child went with uh, mama. One child stayed with me and uh, had a fiance. I basically needed a babysitter. 
And when she hit my son, I put my son on the plane. He went back to San Diego to his mother. And I was free and single and uh, didn't need a fiance anymore. Got into a little bit more trouble. My dear dad ended up being a sheriff in Las Vegas. And um, he came to me one day and said, um, Johnny, your drinking's out of hand. And I just kind of stared at him and said, my drinking is out of hand? You're on your seventh wife. And he looked at me and said, this isn't about me. Um, the hole in the desert has been dug for you. Seems like dating the married daughter of a major casino owner is a no-no. And um, I took him at his word, turned in um, my leased car, shoved all my nice suits in a duffel bag. Thank God I still have the duffel bag from the Air Force. Got on the 15 freeway and hitchhiked home to Mama. And Mama said, the world has been so mean to you. And I said, yes, Mama, it has been. That did not stop me drinking. I drank for another two years, and I got my third DUI. And this one, I had consequences. Now, this is back in 1984, and the terrible consequences of a DUI in 1984 was six whole AA meetings. Six AA meetings, and I, oh, God, what an order. So I went to my favorite bar in Upland, the Boar's Head, and uh, the bartender said, oh, we'll take care of the night. And um, that night, five of my meetings got pencil whipped in the bar. And I said, don't sign the sixth one. They said, why? I said, I, I should go to an AA meeting. So, I, <laughs> so the next day, I went to an AA meeting. And uh, God, it was an old Milano club in Ontario. And the guy, I'll never forget it. The guy that was running the, the, the meeting his name was Bad Attitude Benny, a biker. And I listened to what he had to say and said, oh shit. And um, walked out of there, took my uh, DUI card over to the driver's, the driver's education thing that I said. And, but I heard something. I heard something in the readings before the sharing. And I went back to the, um, driver's instructor and I said, um, you know, I may be what you guys call an alcoholic. And he just smiled and I said, what do I do? It was a Friday. And he said, you know what? There's a great meeting in Upland tonight. It's a speaker's meeting, so you don't have to say anything. So I went to that speaker's meeting and it was a huge meeting. I guess there were about 200, 250 people there. And, um, Whatever concept I had of, uh, of an alcoholic, that I think the concept I had was, you know, the trench coat and, and uh, you know, living on Skid Row and, and living on the streets. And I walked into this meeting and up and I went, damn, these look like nice people. In fact, they look a lot nicer than I am. And uh, there, there was an attraction there. So I said, okay. And uh, some people said, hey, we have more meetings. And they kind of told told me about them and I went, okay. And uh, I think I was done. I was done, I was done drinking. So that was the beginning of my journey in Alcoholics Anonymous. Um, it was the attraction. Uh, I looked at the 12 steps that were on the wall and I went, you yeah, know, 
I could probably find those things in the Bible. And so that wasn't real attractive for me. But I met a few guys and we went out to coffee after the meeting and they were laughing. I hadn't been laughing for a while. So that was the start of my journey in, in, in AA. And it was, first year was not a good, good part of my journey. They stayed, um, I didn't, I looked at it as kind of a religion. I looked at it as kind of a cult. It was working for some people. Um, I listened to the stories. You know, old guys would come up there and talk, and I'm going, those are old guys talking. What are they going to teach me? But that attraction of the people in the meetings is what kept me there. And I probably, probably went to AA for about nine months to a year. And I stayed sober. I was sitting on my hands a lot of the times, especially that first month I was shaking and sitting on my hands. Too dumb to realize that I could have gone to VA and, and, and gone to a rehab. Had no idea and by the time I shook it out, I went, okay, I'm here. And um, jealousy actually got me working the program. I looked at some of my friends and they were happy and I wasn't. And I said, well, what are you guys doing that I'm not? And they said, hey, listen, dummy. We have sponsors. We're working the steps. You might try it. And lo and behold, this guy taps me on the shoulder and says, um, I go to your mother's church. You and I ought to talk. I know, I know who you are, and I'm from the Midwest where your mother's from. And um, so we started talking. And as I started listening to this guy, he said, okay, now I'm your sponsor. It's kind of like, I'm your sponsor whether you like it or not. And he was um, a rough, kind of a older guy, gruff, uh, mechanic. And so we started working the steps. And with the steps, he said, um, you don't really think much of the idea of a higher power, do you, John? I went, well, you know, I'll listen, but no. And he said, um, what I want you to do is I want you to just jump up in the air and stay there. And I looked at him and said, you son of a... And he said, yes, John, there's always going to be a power greater than you are. Whether it's physical, spiritual, it doesn't matter. There are powers that are greater than you. So that was kind of the beginning of, all right, maybe this stuff, yeah, maybe it can make sense and maybe you can teach me how to make sense. Then he started telling me to do stuff that I didn't really like. Uh, the IRS had found me and he said, well, it's their money, not yours. So turn yourself in. Then, this was just the beginning of the computer age. Uh, in 1985, and the computers were finding people a lot easier. And um, this county of San Diego found me and said, you owe child support. And I said, oh my God. And I went to him again, and he says, hey, it's your kids' money, not your money. And I went, okay. And he said, besides, you need to start going to see your kids. And here I am, six foot five, combat veteran, absolutely driving down to San Diego, and I'm absolutely terrified 
because I'm going to see two little kids knowing that I was the crappiest father that ever walked on the earth and that I actually had turned out to be just like my father. So that started a relationship with my kids again. And uh, it's always been the gentle or not so gentle guidance of the men in this program that have taught me how to be a, a, a father, a husband, a better man. So that started a relationship with my kids. And um, it also kept me broke for about four years. But um, IRS got paid off, child support got caught up, um, started seeing the kids. And, and at first it was uh, once a month. And then it was, as I got more money in my pocket, it was twice a month. and. Um, about six months into this thing, meeting my kids again, uh, I, I knew the program was working when, when my oldest little guy said, Dad, we don't even have to look at the clock anymore. You always, always are here on time. And that was because of the order from my sponsor. I was, um, I was to be there 15 minutes ahead of time and never late. And that was his order and I followed that order and the kids saw it. And then um, a couple months later, the kids looked at me and says, we don't really believe what mama says about you. <laughs> and I just kind of smiled and said, uh, your mama is entitled to her opinion. <laughs> and then I got an order from my sponsor that really, really kicked me in the butt. And that was, um, you know, your mama is a good woman and she goes to church every Sunday and you need to take her to church every Sunday. And I'm going, oh my God, what an order. <laughs> what an order. And um, so I started taking mama to church. And the only thing I liked about church was singing because I liked the harmony. So I ended up singing in that church for 25 years. I was in the back row of the, uh, the choir because I'm real tall, in the middle. The light shone down, and as my hair turned gray, you got this little silver halo effect. <laughs> Had a lot of fun with the ministers of that church. They asked me to start a meeting, and uh, but they wanted the other meeting. Um, the program where Jesus Christ is, um, you substitute the God of your understanding for Jesus Christ, and there's a name for this program. So I said, well, I'll try it, but I said, I also gotta have an AA meeting. They said, well, why would you want an AA meeting? And I looked at the, the pastors and just smiled, and I said, um, well, it's kinda like this. I'm in church because of AA, not the other way around. And he kind of smiled and said, okay, do what you want. So I was allowed to start a meeting on Monday night in, in um, the Christian Reformed Church in Chino, or, or, or the, the newest one. And that meeting is still going. It's a Monday night meeting that's been going for 34, 35 years now. And my um, significant other at the time uh, was an Al-Anon, and she started the Al-Anon meeting that's still going. And so we had fun with that church. Um, 
They called us up one day and said, we want you to lead a discussion group um, at church because everybody really, really respects you. And um, I kind of went, uh-oh. I said, Pastor, we're not exactly married yet. And they went, oh, well, six months later, we were married. And uh, began my life in the church. Um, sobriety in Upland for me was um, pretty much an offshoot of the Pacific group. So my speakers meetings were, you know, suit and tie, no cursing from the podium. And um, um, the ladies always wore dresses, very, very regimented, uh, which was fine for me. I mean, I went to the Upland speakers meeting for 25 years. And then I got a chance and I moved to, to, to Glendale. And I went, I need a Friday night meeting. And it's the Friday night meeting that Darren and I go to. And let's see, there's kids at this meeting, right? So, okay, um, I will watch myself. So the first time I went to a meeting in um, Silver Lake that we go to, um, the guy at the podium had holy jeans, dirty white t-shirt on, and he said, well, I just love effing guy. And I'm just sitting there going, oh. I didn't quite know how to make make of that and um, so I kind of sat there and assessed what was going on I said okay is there a, a meeting and not mine and um, I've learned to have a lot of fun in AA and uh, gee I found out that you don't have to be Pacific group or or, or part of a Pacific group offshoot to stay sober I that was just an amazing thing to me but um, that's what's happening today so today I'm having a lot of fun. Um, Darren and I got invited this week to an atheist AA meeting, which I'd never been to before. And, um, you know, however they get sober, that's fine. Just that I was really laughing or trying not to laugh by the time I got out of that, out of that meeting. Number one, it's an atheist meeting held in a church. <laughs> All we did was talk about religion. <laughs> then we talked about how we didn't have to be spiritual to be sober. I went, okay, I'm not quite sure how that works. And then at the end, somebody said, and remember, we do have to plan our winter solstice meeting. And I went, oh, wait a minute. My pagan ancestors worshiped um, Thor and Freya. So yeah, that's, that would be a spiritual meeting. Anyway, we had a lot of fun with that. I am on an exercise kick and a diet, so I've lost um, 35 pounds in five months. Wow. Wow. wow, that's great. I have one ab now. <laughs> I really think that that, 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 that is truly my little tire, but I'm calling it an ab. And um, so, Fun is to be had during COVID. Oh, the one thing I've got to say, there's two things that impressed me in AA, or there's a lot of things that impressed me in AA. But one was all the, the newcomers in AA that got sober on Zoom. I almost equate that to the, the, the guys during World War II that only had a big book. And uh, to, to come into AA through Zoom is, 
kind of like, I need you people. I mean, I love AA. You've taught me how to be a, a friend, a brother, a father. Um, I now have seven grandchildren that have never seen Opa, Grandpa, um, drunk. They love me, I love them. My oldest son uh, is now a commander in the Coast Guard and teaches at the Coast Guard Academy. And those are things that I just would never, ever believe. Uh, today was one of those days where I got to talk to uh, a lot of my fellow veterans. And um, the only thing I miss is uh, talking to my World War II veteran uncles who have passed away because that was the one thing I always did is I called them on Veterans Day. Um, and that brought the family together. So I've learned a lot, gotten to love a lot, and got to feel a lot of love. And it's all because of you. Thank you. Thank you very much. Let's go ahead and give it up one more time for Darren and John. Thank you very much. Thank you everyone for coming out here. We have a, a couple of announcements after we do the raffle. I hope you got your tickets ready. Um, I'd like to ask uh, Tina and Terry to come up here and do the raffle, please. But I wanted to say we're going to have a, a competition chili cook-off next week, next Friday. So please make your chili beans your best one. I'll be making one, and, and we're announcing it with other groups. So we're <laughs> I'll be making some chili. Why not? And, and, and the other thing we got going too is any of you have any heaters, those portable heaters and so forth? Let's go ahead and bring them in, and and let's get warm, and let, we don't have to uh, we don't have to live like this. Man. <laughs> <laughs> All right, the first thing we're gonna give away is the um, the large print daily reflection. You pick one. No, you pick one. I got I bought tickets. No, okay. I'm cheating. Let's see. The number is. Seven four one two. That's me. Oh! No way! Cheater! Yeah, it's fixed. It is fixed. The winner I get. <laughs> right on, Mike. Let's give it up for Mike. Yeah. Can you do you want the daily reflections or the third edition? Oh, um, six. That's Seven four one two. Yeah. Um, I have one of those. Okay, you want this one? Um, Why sure. not? Why not? Yay! Okay, the next number. Oh, Thank like you. a rapper. Okay, <laughs> the next number is seven three nine six. Oh, I got nine three. Seven three <laughs> nine six. Well, look. Yeah. Birthday boy. All right. Yeah. Yeah. Participating, it really does help the group, and that's all we have tonight. Right. And our grapevine representative for this evening, he's going to come up here and tell you what's going on. Oh, there he is. There he is. Good evening, everyone. My name is Nick, alcoholic. Hi, Nick. Um, this week's issue of the grapevine that we have is a that has a special section. Dating in sobriety. Ah! Um, this might be one that I may not want to give away. This is one that I could probably use some of its advice. But um, yeah, it's a great read. Um, if you'd like to subscribe to them, it's, uh, for one year it's $29 and two years it's $54. It's good to give away at panels, things like that. Um, uh, we do um, give these out for free. All we ask though is that you do bring them back so that way we could cycle them out and um, everyone gets an opportunity to read them. 
Um, another announcement I'd like to add, um, we do have plenty of cake available if you guys would like to go and take some yeah, home. And one personal thing I'd like to add, those veterans that uh, have served, I'd like to tell you guys personally, thank you for your service. Um, I appreciate it, and thank you guys for letting me be of service. So who's going to take it? Who's going to take it? First of all. I'll take it. So yeah, I was trying to hoard it over yeah. here. Sorry about that, guys. Mike needs it. All right. Yeah, Mike needs it. Just because, uh, no, I facilitate a, a grapevine meeting on Thursday at 5 o'clock. Oh, Thursday, 5 uh, o'clock, grapevine. And then we'll share about it. Learn about the relationship. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Am I up? Okay, Terry's up. There's also potato salad over yes. there. Please take that as well. Really good, too. I had some. Thanks. Hi, I'm Terry, and I'm an alcoholic. I'm going to read the promises. If we are painstaking about this phase of our development, we will be amazed before we are halfway through. We are going to know a new freedom and a new happiness. We will not regret the past, nor wish to shut the door on it. We will comprehend the word serenity, and we will know peace. No matter how far down that scale we have gone, we will see how our experience can benefit others. That feeling of uselessness and self-pity, it'll disappear. <laughs> We will lose interest in selfish things and gain interest in our fellows. Self-seeking will slip away. Our whole attitude and outlook upon life will change. Fear of people and of economic insecurity will leave us. We will intuitively know how to handle situations which used to baffle us. And if you don't, call your sponsor. <laughs> We will suddenly realize that God is doing for us what we could not do for ourselves. Are these extravagant promises? We think not. We think not. They are being fulfilled among us, sometimes quickly and sometimes slowly. But they will always materialize if we work for them. After a moment of silence for the alcoholic, that still suffers in and out of these rooms, zooms and parks, and the children and loved ones who are caught in the crossfire, please join me in the Lord's Prayer. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from all evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen.